actually here at level 39 in Canary Wharf for the 100th episode of Blockchain Insider. To make it that extra bit special, we are live. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined as ever by Colin G. Platt. But as you can see, if you're here in the room, or as you can hear, possibly if you're listening on the recording, you're not near a field. How are you doing, Colin? I am doing very well. I'm not in a field, though, which is disappointing. Uh, how did Petrick, producer Petrick get you to leave the field? What, what did it take? He promised beer. Ah, uh, okay. You do have beer, that's true. <laughs> um, so what are we actually doing today? It's, um, it's not going to be like one of our usual shows where we talk about the news of blockchain all week whilst you're near a field. Uh, we're going to talk through all kinds of subjects. Um, as much as you love trolling the weekly news, Colin. As much as I do love trolling the weekly news, and Simon, and especially Petrit, we're going to talk about the most important things that have happened over the last 100 episodes, including ICOs, STOs, PTKs, regulation, Bitcoin, crypto, DLT, banking, consortium, much, much more, but really a lot about PTK. A lot about... You're wearing the PTK t-shirt. Always be chilling. If people don't know what PTK is, Colin will tell you all about it afterwards. Um, you, can, you can get your own PTK t-shirts and join the foundation, which is spelt with a PH. Legally. <laughs> uh, but before I get started, I just want to get a quick feel for the room. Um, hands up if you're from a bank or work in financial services. Wow. Wow, it's about 25, 30%. Check uh, that out. I think we're getting closer to half there. That's maybe even half. Wow, we, we got a rock and roll crowd. We got some, we got some maybes over here, too. Yeah, do I work in a bank? Do I not? Like... <laughs> uh, they must work for Ripple. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where, where did I go to work today? I'm not really sure. Um, all right, what about if you work in crypto, DLT, or some kind of enthusiast, but professionally? All right, so that's about maybe 20%. And then, hands up if you don't think I described your job in anything I just said. Awesome. Okay, so like three people. <laughs> cool, so we got some nerds, we got some bankers. I think we're ready to get started. And as usual, uh, when Colin's in town, we like to get some incredible guests on the show. So we're not alone. First up, we are joined by the one, the only, TBT herself, Tina Baker-Taylor, Executive Director of GDF. Please come to the stage. TBT, how are you? I'm great. I've got two glasses of wine. You are prepared. Uh, since this episode 100, yes. we're keeping it 100. Yeah. What's your favorite blockchain insider moment been? Ooh, so I've been thinking about this because I was asked to consider it. And I think my favorite was the first one I did um, when I had to take an emergency Vicodin that I was given to my mother <laughs> in a stash. And I had a tooth... Yeah. And I don't really remember the entire episode at all. <laughs> but it was the best one. When I listened back, I was it's like, you know, really quite clever and super fun. So I don't think I can replicate that again. It's not going to happen. No. Now you got. Well, we have something for you. Here. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, and we're joined by some newcomers. Uh, making his long-awaited debut on the show is Mr. Oliver Harris, who's head of quorum and crypto asset strategy at J.P. Morgan. Ollie, please join the stage. You made it all the way from the other side of the street. That's great. Amazing. <laughs> we can actually see your office from here. That's yeah. pretty, pretty weird, level 39. Is that your private key? Yes. <laughs> I think Somewhere you dropped your key. Very secure. How are you doing, Ollie? You good? Pretty good, yeah. Thanks for having me. Do you have a favorite blockchain insider moment? No, sadly. I, I'm I, stoned? Um, not Vicodin for me, but um, diazepam was my excuse. Yeah. So, <laughs> no. 
Let the good times roll. Let the good times roll. <laughs> and speaking of letting the good times roll, last but by no means least, we are joined by an incredible guest. We have Mr. Pete McCormack, uh, the host of What Bitcoin Did podcast. Please join the stage. Is it, is it Peter or Dr. McCormack? Peter. <laughs> yeah. Peter, thank you for being with us. Uh, how are you doing, sir? You good? Good. How are you? Nah, I'm all right. Uh, I'll get through. Uh, this could be worse. I've got a stage. We got uh, we got beers. We got some uh, podcast goodness to get through. Uh, Colin, uh, we've talked a little bit about Bitcoin in the last hundred episodes. Do you have a favorite moment that Bitcoin's I have, happened? I have about a hundred favorite moments. <laughs> yeah, just a tear up there. No, um, I, I think one of the, the most fun episodes was like it's always the things before and after, um, and we like to give Petra a hard time. I think my favorite was uh, making Petra stay late because we were with Tina and Anthony Macy and Serafina and we all decided to get really drunk before the podcast. That was on my list, but then Pat said I couldn't use that because, because they had I'm to using, cut it. They all did, of it. they had to cut all of it. And yeah. I insulted a UK politician, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> favorite moments Memble, about. Memble. All right, let's get on with the show, though. Um, we're going to talk about uh, all things Bitcoin and its adoption. And, and I think, uh, you know, given about half the rooms in the world of financial services, uh, Bitcoin's one of those subjects that seems to be around and seems to be either it's, it's poison and you're not allowed to touch it or, wait, hang on, it keeps getting adopted. Wait, the, there, was a, there was a crazy price move and everybody was suddenly interested and then the price went down and suddenly everybody in financial services was less interested. But I've often said, um, and heard it said that the least interesting thing about Bitcoin is its price. Um, Peter, you've had a whole bunch of conversations uh, along these lines. What are some of the conversations you had when the price <coughs> was going crazy, and, and how's that changed since then? How do you reflect on them? Um, well, I, I guess when the prices were going crazy, most people were interested in Bitcoin and then resulting other uh, shitcoins just because of the speculation. And... I always think it's it's kind of sad, really. It kind of misleads, it kind of takes people away from what the original visions are, or some of the most important things that you can do with Bitcoin. I've just uh, I've just been at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Oslo, obviously in Oslo, the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway, <laughs> uh, hosted by the Human Rights Foundation. Um, I hosted a panel with people from India, Iran. Uh, uh, Nigeria, the Philippines, and telling different stories of how people are actually using Bitcoin that's making a difference to their life. Um, great example uh, was the girl in India. Her father-in-law is dying from cancer, stage four cancer, and the local currency is devalued so much that his savings are becoming worthless. So they now transfer him Bitcoin from the UK so he can transfer that as and when he needs it to pay his hospital fees. And I think that for me, it's become these stories like this and a better financial system and better money has become a much more important story than uh, people buying Lamborghinis and that yeah. bullshit. But, but that makes better headlines, right? And it, it's more sensationalism, but actually that human interest story kind of gets lost. It's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, but, Oli, what about banks and people working uh, with the world of crypto assets and digital assets more broadly? Um, what was what's your reflection been? Has the, has the speculation around price been a distraction or helpful? I think um, definitely a distraction. I think going back to yeah, the, the crazy times of 2017. Heady days. Yeah, the heady days. We had a lot of interest from clients, obviously, wanting to learn more. And I think um, our position was very much... We'd already been looking at the um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the actual technology, the use cases for it for many years. We had um, engineers and obviously already quorum. So I think for us, 
it was about um, educating clients on the use cases of the technology um, and then internally thinking through like you know what does that mean for JP Morgan mm-hmm. and our businesses um, but yeah most obviously then when crypto winter arrived the a lot of those inbound calls stopped from clients and that actually for us was one of the most interesting times because we can actually just like get our heads down and focus on like building out our own um, applications. Good times. Tina, I, I want to come up with some thoughts though. Um, you've obviously watched uh, a whole bunch of things happen in Bitcoin. What, what are your thoughts as you stand back and look at the last couple of years? So over the last couple of years, I think what is interesting is the volatility and what fuels it and what results from it. So, you know, the shitcoin waterfall is a, is a great example of how hype basically just creates more hype, which creates more hype. Um, and I think there was a point in time where, PTK excluded, um, where, uh, you know, people were just buying stuff. And people would ask me, well, you know, which tokens do you like? Or, you know, what, what should I buy? And, you know, I had somebody call me um, saying, this friend at work gave me this advice, and I won't say which uh, token, but, you know, we're going to... Basically, they just had a baby. They just bought a house, and they had, you know, a nest egg for both of these two things. Um, and they were going to spunk it on this coin. And I said, well, why would you... it's not a coin. Why would you do that? Yes, this token. Um, and so I think some of it became... Uh, people were just making decisions based on trying to ride a wave that were... Um, ill-informed in a way that you wouldn't invest in any other asset class. Um, so I think that's probably the, the biggest thing. But what I was most compelled by recently, along the lines of what you just said, um, so at Consensus this year, first of all, it was much quieter. It was a much more mature crowd. Um, the content was really defined. There were no Lambos parked outside, um, which, by the way, nobody owned. There was a car dealership that parked them there, yeah. so fake hype. So the car... Car dealerships are now wrecked. Yeah, they're wrecked. Um, but one of the best attended, standing room only, there was a whole track on how Bitcoin is being used in South America. And some of these stories were incredible. So, you know, we can argue whether it's money, whether it's a store of value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it is transformative. And, you know, talking about the price or the hype is just not the most interesting missing, thing. missing the point. But Colin, though, like, talk to me about uh, the institutional side a little bit more <coughs> because um, people have talked, you know, I think there was a lot of interest, as Ollie said, uh, of institutions maybe gaining access to Bitcoin at one stage. Um, do you think that's gone away? Uh, do you think that's something that, institutions still want to do, don't want to do? What's your read on, on where that's at? Or has the conversation changed? Uh, I think the conversation has changed where we're sitting in the middle of 2019. Um, I think the conversation that we've been following was very much along what's been outlined here. Uh, when number goes up, uh, people want number to go up and they want their own numbers to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, interest rates were low. Uh, interest rates continue to remain low and people just want to return investment funds. Um, how do you do that? You put it into shitcoins. Uh, number one up, it was great. Everybody loved that. Um, the thing is, it's still really, really difficult for institutions to get involved. And that's probably a good thing because it's really volatile. And we shouldn't really be putting our pension funds into it, in my opinion. Um, but, um, and of course, none of this is financial advice. Um, or putting money into a pension fund that then you can't cash out. So what was that story going back into the fund stories of the year in Uruguay? 
where the government had uh, turned everybody, they took everybody's pension funds and put them into crypto, and then the banks wouldn't let them cash their pension funds out? Venezuela? Was it Venezuela? I don't think it was. Mm. (laughs) But, I mean, how, how random. So As the, you can see, the these stories are really well researched. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I can't yeah. remember the country. This is the first time I'm hearing about it's that. The, no, you were So the state converted. So you know what I'm talking about. The state converted. <laughs> state, state, uh, you know, governed um, pension <coughs> funds into uh, it's the Petro. So. Venezuela. 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 Okay. Oh, yeah. Venezuela. Converted it all into the Petro. And Venezuela. then yeah. um, these people were trying to make their withdrawal out of their pension funds to, you know, their Social Security, essentially. And they couldn't because the banks would not take the Petro. Because Venezuela's fucked. Well, I didn't say that. I did. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's that, of course. But, but this is a, a different question than, you know, like, why are people buying Bitcoin? And some of it, of course, there are people in, Bitcoin, uh, in Venezuela that are buying Bitcoin or interested in Bitcoin, but has it institutionally solved the problem in Venezuela? I think the answer is no, um, although it may have solved some cases. And, and coming back to the institutions, I think on an institutional level, it's way too early for any of this. It's still a gamble, yeah. which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there are good anecdotal evidence that you know, there are areas that can possibly benefit from this. Will it ever reach that escape velocity? I remain unconvinced, but I'm interested in the, in the problem. And, and that was kind of a big what I was going to follow up with Peter is is where do we go from here? Like, what happens next? Because there's there's a whole bunch of stuff happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem. It doesn't stand still. Uh, there's a whole bunch of tooling being built. There are products being built for for customers. There are use cases like that, but they feel edge case still. Um, and you know, is that going to move forward? And is this stuff just not for institutions? It's against them. Is it an adversarial relationship necessarily? I mean, the thing about Bitcoin that I've kind of got to that point is is that I stopped trying to create a single narrative about it, mm, and that. it really becomes about what it is for you. So you could be in China, and for you it can be a way out of capital controls. Or you could be in Argentina, and you use it as a way of avoiding hyperinflation. Uh, for me, it's a, I use it as a speculation on a better future financial system with a, def- with a deflationary currencies, which if it achieves the goals that I think, will provide uh, a very healthy nest egg for me. And I think for institutions, it's, it's really going to come down what it is for them. But institutions are, are investing. It is happening. Yeah. You know? mm. It depends um, how you define institution. But yes, absolutely. There are yeah. regulated kind of uh, bodies and regulated companies that are funds, that yeah. have licenses, that, that are buying and selling and trading Bitcoin in, in, in mm-hmm. Well, you have a secret desk, yeah. don't you? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Does Jamie think, allow um, you to trade it yet? No. Uh, I think, um, Does Jamie know that you have it? I don't I mean, it took, it took <laughs> 10 minutes before it's, that started, so we did well. Yeah, that's right. No, I think um, it's interesting. What, from an infrastructure perspective, I, obviously it started retail first for individuals, and we can all go sign up, get a Coinbase account or a Gemini account. But I think for... Um, larger businesses, the infrastructure is still coming in. And you look at like um, the custody piece, obviously there are companies like Anchorage, even today. Um, Fireblocks is a really interesting company trying to secure um, you know, the exchange of crypto assets across institutions. So there's still a lot of work to be done for like traditional incumbents to work in this space. And I think exactly agree with Peter's point. It's around like your own personal narrative and why do you actually, like what's the use case, what's the rationale for owning these assets? Is it speculation? Is it the censorship resistance piece? Like 
it's up to you as an individual or an institution to decide. It's interesting. People tend to see what they want to see in Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, it's like an in inkblot test. You kind of see, it says more about you, what you see in it, than, than it probably is itself. Um, but at the same time, it's not going away. Um, what, we're 130 some odd times it's been pronounced dead. So, um, more than that. What do you see in it? What? Let's go back to this research test. <laughs> It's just really interesting because it keeps morphing and changing. And, and, and I don't know what it's going to be tomorrow. And I'm going to learn something. And mm -hmm. I find that really exciting. Fair enough. Which is why we do podcast stuff, right? And I've got to move us on. All right. So our second topic's a bit broader, um, which is <coughs> crypto regulation and tokens. Um, how many times, Colin, do you think we said the word uh, SEC during our last 100 episodes? 412. <laughs> That's really precise. No, I made it up. <laughs> uh, all right, but back when the podcast started, there were many tokens being created out of thin air, weren't there? No, no, no. none of that. I, I remember covering so many token stories in a given week. Um, uh, like, we did have a thing where you covered 10 in a week once. I, I think we had like, yeah, 10, 10 new tokens in a week that we were covering. We were just randomly, we thought were interesting out of the probably thousands that were like out there. But then Not the regulators reason. came, didn't they? And the market kind of went down. It became a lot more difficult to launch the tokens and gain traction. There was an ICO bubble, people. It did happen. But now the conversation sort of changed. We're, we're hearing a lot about IEOs. We're hearing a lot about security tokens. We're hearing all of this other language sort of appear. And yet, the, was, there, was there a there there? You know, have regulators killed this thing? Or is there, are there new ways of raising capital that are really, really interesting for entrepreneurs or small businesses or communities? Like, where are we at on this one? Panel, go nuts. The regulators will tell you that the ICO model in and of itself is an a efficient way to raise capital. They don't have a problem with the ICO model. I mean, the last paper that came out from the FCA acknowledges that it is an interesting way to raise capital. Now, that means that there needs to be some guardrails around that, right? And you've got a business. You want to produce a thing, right? Do you need $100 million to produce that thing? Probably not, unless you're making unicorns. So is $2 million enough? If we put a cap on that ICO process and we extend the white paper to have some kind of governance structure that requires a certain level of disclosure, um, that I think that could be possible. And we'll see. Don't make that face. And we'll see a resurgence of, um, you know, capital formation that is not, you know, in an IPO security-driven environment. Um, but. Regulators didn't necessarily understand or they weren't, you know, up to speed on what was happening whilst it was happening. Um, and then there was this explosion and then a reaction. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, entire, entirely agreed. I think um, backwards, you know, everyone was caught up in the wave of the ICO mania. And I think one of the things personally, like, super interested in is, you know, this ability to create new forms of capital raising where you can actually link the activity of that business directly to the individual. Um, I think the key part of it is the regulation around that. And as you just mentioned, in the UK, I think a similar approach in the US around, obviously, the existing securities laws there. Um, and the fact that regulators are taking a very careful look at the on and yeah. off ramps, whether you're Coinbase or others. Like If you regulate the on and off ramps between fiat and digital assets, you can have a better you know, sense of control around you know, who's raising capital, why are they raising capital. Um, and why and do you need to amount? float 
a utility token on a secondary market if you want to raise capital to build a thing. So there's two things going on. Um, there's there's one we think it's an interesting way to raise capital because raising money um, whilst there was SoftBank and a few others around, if you were white and from Stanford, you probably were going to raise money and be fine. But for everybody else, um, you know, it's good to have some alternatives. Or wealth creation, fractional investing. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in being able to... Wealth Fractional investing, wealth creation. Talk to me about those. What does that mean for so somebody who's if, if, the The way that the security market is structured today, I have to be an accredited or a sophisticated investor. And there's some you know, pretty standard criteria that says I need to have this much in liquid assets, I need to have this much in a salary, and I need to have invested in something like this before. And I think what we found... How do you do the first one? Pardon? How do you do the first one? The first one what? If the rules say you have to have done it before, how do you do the first one? Excellent question. You get a broker that buys you like some, okay. you know... Shitty package. So you're locked out basically until sure. you, until you got a lot of money. Sure. And you can't get a lot of money until you got a lot of money. Correct. And that's the thing. So a sophisticated investor, just because you have a lot of money, basically what it means is you have money that you can, can afford to lose, as opposed to a sophisticated investor. Because I think we would argue there's a lot of people who are very sophisticated in the crypto asset. Um, investor space that really know what they're doing. Um, there's a lot of people that don't, um, but that don't necessarily maybe meet that accredited investor requirement. So if I can't start to invest in increments, how am I ever going to start to create wealth for myself? I think it's a really interesting way to see qualified and accredited as can afford to lose money. Um, surely that's not right and it's locked a lot of people out of wealth creation and so you can see why people were interested in this space of like well hang on a minute I can't buy into Uber until long after they've grown I can't buy into Square until long after they've grown I get them when they're in the public market and I may grow once I get those stocks and shares but I don't get the growth that those investors that were allowed to get in early on got so we, we watch this party happening and, and we're not able to do you think Peter this is why there's some interest in this space I don't think that was crossing people's minds I don't no. think people were thinking oh I can buy Ethereum now this is great because I couldn't get into Uber early I don't think it crossed most people's minds ever. sure I, I take your point I just I just think uh, I, I agree with you credit accreditor investor rules are, are draconian and, and elitist and uh, go way back to 1927 or something yeah the Great Depression solve, no. you um, can solve for those use cases without the need for any crypto assets mm -hmm. so if you look like, at like yeah. funding, funding so-called Crowdcube even the like US Monzo, for example. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the whole crypto thing just caught people unaware. They weren't ready. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I, my view on it is that it's just a load, real load of bullshit, the whole crypto tokens thing. It's um, like I'm conscious of the audience here, how many people put their hands up who are bankers, who are seeing blockchain and hearing about uh, ways to raise capital and security tokens. And I'm very conscious that that most people with a small amount of information can get excited about it. But really, once you spend long enough time in it, you realise it's all just fucking bullshit. Sorry, can we swear on your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's just fucking bullshit. And essentially, people are, are, are buying into... Because your difficulty is you're trying to regulate a token across... Uh, uh, you know, international borders, which you can't do. So you really, when you're buying a token, you're buying, you're buying thin air. Or at your very best, you're buying access to a service if it's a utility token, which you would never in any rational, normal market do. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say, okay, I'm going to buy 
60 tickets for Alton Towers and then I'll go whenever I want and, and then maybe I'll sell someone that won't. You just wouldn't do it because that's dumb. But that's essentially what we're doing with utility tokens. So I'm very sceptical. But you might buy a seat in a stadium that's yet to be built. But would you buy 400 seats? That's... No, I would not buy 400 Yeah, but, but you're buying a seat, you're buying a seat in a stadium where there's... Uh, 90,000 seats, perhaps, at best. You wouldn't buy, With this, you're buying a token where there's 90 billion, which also have eight decimal places. And, yeah. and there's no demand. At least in a stadium, I know England are going to play like 20 times this season, and I can see Beyonce. Probably less, because you'll get I mean, out. I wouldn't go to Beyonce, but... So, well, maybe I'd go to Beyonce, <laughs> but what I'm saying is you've got all these things that you know you're going to get. You're buying these tokens. Like, I'm still yet for someone to actually prove to, prove to me and show me a successful token. There are two successful tokens. One's Ethereum for generating other unsuccessful tokens. The other one is BNB, but which that is, is the that biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. So, but that isn't a success in Ethereum because all it's done is create, a, a, it's basically taken a bunch of money and moved it one place to another. But that's and not people a success. People use it to do that thing. That's... To do that thing, to create scams. <laughs> to I Colin, mean, that's yeah. a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, that probably says more about yeah. Colin and his, hey, his ink people, test. People use stable coins on the top of it, right? All right, but let's let's move away from just this concept of tokens more broadly. People are talking about uh, decentralized exchanges and this term that comes around a lot, DeFi. Um, <laughs> people, yeah, I'm seeing pained looks. Peter, do you want to just take us through <laughs> what, what do people mean when they say DeFi and, and like, what does it mean to you? Oh, God, I'm going to sound like a broken... Again, it means bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Um, I just don't believe it's... Um, I, think it's I think it's nonsense. I think it's complicated. I think most people in the normal world won't be using it. Like, I understand MakerDAO is kind of interesting, right? Mm. It's kind of interesting... If, especially if you already have a bunch of Ethereum because you can create you know, some liquidity for yourself to do other things and pay off your house. And some smart people can do some interesting things. But if you actually go into the real world of most people and say, okay, so if you want, to, if you want, if you want decentralized finance, okay, so firstly you need to buy Ethereum and you need to access through MetaMask, but you've got to buy an exchange. It's just, they're just going to go to the bank and borrow money. It's just we're so, we're so in like nerd center and so far away from real life yeah. that I just think it's... it's Developers building things for developers and nerds for nerds, and it's like this walled garden of. Can I please nonsense. take you with me the next time I meet with a regulator and they say, "Oh, really? Decentralized exchanges—they're super dangerous." If you could just come and explain that only nerds are worried about this. And oh, yeah. nerds, I, and I, nerds and drug dealers. That's a use case. <laughs> I, no, I think that's a really interesting point. Of uh, hands up in the audience, how many people have heard the term DeFi before? Okay, so that's about half of the room. How many so, people know what it means? Yeah, that's a bridge. So yeah. decentralized finance. Um, the idea is instead of centralized finance, you would decentralize finance. And how, how, many how many people, people want to be their own bank? DeFi service or yeah. decentralized exchange. We got one, two, three, four, four, five. People. We got five. And some half hands as well, like two half hands. So but, we'll count that as half. But as how, six. how many people in this room want to be their own bank? One. <laughs> How many wow. people are sick of us asking questions and want us to get on with the show? <laughs> All right. Um, so, look, that's a, that's a subject that comes up around tokens. But the other subject that's been in the news a lot recently is Facebook coin. Um, reactions. Zuckbucks. Big fan. Yeah? Yeah, big fan. Go. So, for a couple of reasons. Um, I was talking about this today with somebody, actually. Um, so there's a few reasons I'm a big fan. Uh, firstly, I obviously kind of reeled in horror when I first heard about it because Facebook have um, 
continu continually invaded our privacy, misused our data, but every company misuses our data. Everyone's selling our data. Whatever service you're signing up to now, they're selling your data. So we just kind of have to accept that. Um, and almost certainly, Facebook will not be unleashing a uh, dollar peg stable coin to 2 billion users without having spoken to the US government. It just, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. But the reality of this is, the thing that excites me most about this is that I'm a big fan of Bitcoin because I'm a big fan of um, uh, decentralized control and what Bitcoin can do for people. It, it, it fascinates me. The great thing about Facebook coin, Libra coin, yeah. is that it's going to expose 2 billion people to the term cryptocurrency and give them a very easy way of onboarding and buying cryptocurrency. And the chart I'm most looking forward to everyone seeing is their F Facebook coin, Bitcoin chart, which over most timeframes will kind of highlight to people what they don't realize is is how much uh, uh, their their money is uh, def uh, deflate. Uh, sorry, how much their money is inflated? So how much value they're losing? And hopefully, people will see see think, oh well, this Bitcoin thing keeps going up against my F Facebook coin. Maybe I should buy some. Mm -hmm. So this will make uh, Bitcoin more powerful. Second reason I'm a big fan of it is it's gonna uh, for a bunch of people who are living in countries where the government completely mismanaged money. You go to India where they just routinely take money out of the circulation and that uh, and completely fuck their population, or you go to Argentina which has got 40% inflation or a million percent inflation in Venezuela where the entire country is in poverty. They suddenly with technology have access to a state more stable currency than that country. Mm. So hopefully that's going to give a lot more power to the people, take people out of poverty in countries like that, and at the same time grow Bitcoin. So I'm a big fan, despite the fact that it's you've got the obvious things to be yeah. scared about. So do you think that we that that for this to to grow and mass adopt? We need a big company like that that already has adoption to kind of fly the flag. For what to mass adopt? So what you're saying is, two billion people are going to have access yeah. or understand crypto or, or, or be aware of yeah, crypto. Be aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Become aware. Um, yeah. That that weren't before. Yeah. So my question is, is it um, a necessary evil to have a big company like Facebook that already has two million users engaged? Is is that the killer app that like takes this into mainstream? I mean, is that does it have to be that way? I think we're already in mainstream, firstly, because, I mean, did anyone in this room had not heard of Bitcoin before they arrived today? Uh, really? This is a, this is a friendly audience. I was going to say, slightly but, biased. Yeah, but yeah. what I'm saying is, is that I, I, ask, <laughs> I ask this question all the time. I, I very rarely these days have, when you say to somebody, have you heard of Bitcoin, they say no. Yeah. So we're already mainstream. It's, on this, it's in the Scrabble dictionary. But isn't that a bit but like asking people if you've heard of a Learjet? Like... They're not yeah, exactly mainstream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But, but I, what I mean by mainstream is that it's, it's, in, it's in the public domain now. Most people have heard of it. They're aware of it. What is it? Okay, so that's a, that's a good start. My contrarian view is I don't really care about mass adoption. So, And I'm stealing this point from a very smart guy called Nick Carter. If you want to learn more about Bitcoin, follow him on Medium. He's a great writer. Uh, he says the goal isn't mass, mass adoption. The goal isn't with Bitcoin to have everyone buying cups of coffee and using it all the time. The, the, the goal is to create a better financial system. Yeah. To create more wealth that no one can control and inflate. Good stuff. And Oli, I just I'm want to get a quick reflection from you. On yeah, what I was going to say, I'm not sure I, I, I buy necessarily the correlation to Bitcoin over time. But for similar reasons, super interested and love to see what they do. Um, I think the user basis is very important. I think yeah. to the Learjet point, um, you will get two billion people using this across all of their apps. And I think, for me in particular, it's around like Instagram and WhatsApp and how they embed 
LibraCoin or whatever the name is into it. I think WhatsApp especially, right? Yeah. Emerging markets, WhatsApp, community organization, yeah. payment at distance. Like there's there's it's a whole bunch. Alibaba of crypto. I'll yeah. be able to just... Because I think you will get, for the remittances use case, which I think is used um, a lot in the Bitcoin example, you know, that will just explode, I hope, you know, the, and solve the pain point and actual will get the mass adoption. And who knows, maybe they get a revenue model that doesn't involve just snooping on all of our data. Here's hoping. All right, I've got to move to the next point. Um, we're going to go on to our last topic, which is DLT and banking, because there's a lot of bankers in the audience. But before we get into that, we thought it'd be fun to play a quick game of higher or lower. So we're, what we're going to do here is I'm going to read out a stat which uh, is true or not true. You, the audience, uh, which, sorry, which is true. Um, you, the audience, what's this, Petrit? <laughs> Which isn't true. There you go. False, I believe, would be the word. Okay. You, the audience, need to tell us and the listeners at home whether you think the actual stat is higher or lower when I read that out. So if Colin uh, G. Platt said this is episode 96 of Blockchain Insider, you would say... Higher. Unless we count <laughs> hexadecimal. Well, yeah, unless we're in hex. Um, so um, give us a louder, higher people. Come on. Higher. There we go. And a, and a lower... Oh, yeah, I like that you used the tone of voice for that. Like, changing the pitch. Well played, audience. All right. ICOs raised in 2018 reached 9.5 billion US dollars. Higher? Higher. Lower? Lower. Oh, that's about 50-50. Uh, the actual number was, in fact, higher at 11.4 billion. Um, all right. Uh, there have been... 80 Bitcoin forks. Higher or lower? Higher? Higher. Higher. Lower? Lower. Ooh, I'd say about 70% there we're going for lower. Um, to date, there have been 105. That's a lot of forks. Forking hell. Yeah. <laughs> that was terrible. That was bad. <laughs> terrible sound. I, I couldn't bad. not. It, it was right there. I, I'm practicing my dad joke. We're going to cut that one. Um, all right. Um, <laughs> Bitcoin has been declared dead. 310 times higher or lower? Yeah, you got this. I kind of accidentally leaked that earlier in the show, didn't I? It's 361 times. Uh, all right. Uh, $1.9 billion was spent globally by banks on blockchain solutions in 2017. Higher? Lower. Yeah, it was about $1.7 billion. We're going to get that number up. Only. We need number, we need number to go up. Surely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Forrester predicted that 75% of corporate blockchain experiments will die in the experimentation phase. Um, did Forrester predict higher or lower than 75%? Higher. higher. Yeah, they predict 90% will die, which um, probably speaks to Peter's point. Um, and this one is for Colin G. Platt. Um, there is a total supply of 11 billion PTK tokens, higher or lower? What's the actual number? Uh, that's hard to calculate. If you count all the forks, uh, 400 trillion. And uh, what, what would that make your net worth? I don't even know. I, I don't know like number names that high. I, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I tapped out at like decillions. Yeah, that's, that's a way to go. I don't think they have words for it beyond that. Um, okay, we've got one more for you. Um, Bitcoin will be $10,000 at the end of 2019. Higher. 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 Lower? 
Oh, wow. We've, so one Bitcoin will be worth one Bitcoin at the end of 2019. You're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. All right. Uh, with that done, let's get into some DLT and banking stuff. Uh, Colin, is there anything going on in DLT and banking? Is it dead? No and yes. <laughs> but we still have a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> All right, but the consortia, um, there were a lot of consortia that appeared. Um, you know, R3 is still a, a going concern. They still have paying members. They've built Corda. Um, they sponsor the podcast. They sponsor the podcast. Shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show. Um, they, they, seem to be, <laughs> they seem to be doing things, bless them. Um, we love R3. Yeah, we love R3. Um, panel, what do we think? Is, is the best way to do something uh, getting a consortium together or is there a better route? Tina, I'm going to throw it at you on this one. Ooh, okay. Um, so I think for banks, um, it's a catch-22. So, you know, the power of a consortia allows you to um, share R&D costs, allows you to, you know, solve a problem that, you know, is, is interchangeable, um, you, you know, first movers are able to grab a lot of market share and then everybody needs to get on board with your solution. Um, you can avoid duplicating efforts. So there's lots of positives. Um, I will borrow from Sandra Rowe, CEO at Global Blockchain Business Council. Uh, her answer last week was um, a project that she had been undertaking. Everybody agreed on the problem that needed to be solved. Everybody agreed on the solution. And then they spent five months arguing about who owned the IP. Yeah. <laughs> Been there. So, you know, there's, there's a shoot yourself in the foot uh, element that, that sits behind some of these things. So, I mean, I think it's quite exciting that uh, Universal Settlement Coin has, has finally kind of come out. They're public and you know, they've lost some people along the way. Um, so, you know, a shame that that's happened. But... Um, the, you know, they've announced that they're going to have this, you know, interchange system and, 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 a, and a settlement across uh, banks. But that was four years in the making that that Damn. took. Four years. That's and longer than the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> so um, then that becomes expensive, yeah. right? And it becomes, and, and fatigue sets in. And you're, you know, asking for dollars and you're constantly having to defend the project. And, you know, you're the guy in the innovation lab that keeps having to go and saying, I need more money, please. Um, and Speaking of hard. which, uh, Ollie. Yeah, exactly, I think. <laughs> How's been going with Quorum? Do you want to just tell the audience uh, what Quorum. Quorum is? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so Quorum uh, for us is, um, and we're super proud of it, it's a fork of the public Ethereum, uh, the Geth clients. So Geth runs around 60% of all Ethereum mainnet transactions. And what we did way back in um, 2015 when we were looking at um, all the different technologies is we decided that we liked the Ethereum technology but there were three things that we needed to improve for um, enterprises to use it, which is around the performance, so switching out the consensus mechanisms, removing gas and um, the actual ether component. So a database. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two. That is true. Yeah. Um, and I'll get back. So I think we should have an interesting debate around the two different um, approaches. Privacy, and then the, first, the last bit is obviously permissioned. And we open sourced it in 2016, which has been really fantastic for us because we've seen like loads of financial services companies start using it, but also lots of um, institutions outside of financial services. Like okay. Facebook. Not Facebook. So, um, at least to my knowledge, it's open source. So <laughs> you mentioned knows. the privacy thing there. I mean, yeah. I think the thing that's on the, the tip of everybody's tongue is, is 
what problem did you set out to solve and do you feel like it's solving it? Yeah. So um, for us, de definitely, um, we, were, we looked at a whole bunch of technologies and I think our approach is very different. If I take the permissionless space, totally get um, and think it's super interesting, like Simon was saying around the evolution of Bitcoin, the, you know, all things are socially constructed. We see how they'll change over time and the use cases it's solving for. Um, around like censorship resistance, um, you know, remittances, etc. I think when we're looking at it from an institutional perspective, we're solving for very different problems, which is, yes, a distributed database with special properties, which helps us solve problems we face in financial services today. Um, so there, there are two different narratives, and I think they get confused. Um, and I personally think they'll coexist together. Yeah. So... I think if it's solving a problem for the banks, then that's no bad thing. It just may not be the same thing that, that Peter hoped to see, which is, yeah. which, again, it, you know, those are two very different things. But i got to do it. <clears throat> Thoughts? No, I'm just wondering what is the problem it's solving? Because I don't know. <coughs> I've not even looked into it. I just wonder why you'd need a blockchain. Yeah, so for, for us, um, I'll give a few examples, and I'll give some JPM ones, some non-JPM ones. A lot of it is when... And back to the consortia building perspective, there's a lot of cost, resource, and intermediaries in value chains um, where you need to exchange information. So, for example, one of our applications is called the Interbank Information Network. Mm. It's a layer on top of catchy. SWIFT. Yeah, very catchy. <laughs> um, much like yeah, JPM Coin, we're marketing geniuses. Um, <laughs> and the key thing there is we're resolving issues that we face today when a payment fails. And that can take weeks to clear and settle. And with a distributed database, we can actually solve that in minutes. And again, for us, we're looking at a few dimensions. It's the fractionalization, again, coming back to the tokens discussion. It's real time, it's 24-7, and it's efficient. So I think we, for us, when we're looking at how does this business operate today, how can we re-architect that whole value chain um, and achieve like lower costs and actually generate new business models, that's when we get excited. But again, not everything needs a blockchain. And I think for us, we're extremely critical internally. It's like, what problem are you yeah. actually solving for? If there is a need for privacy, distributed trust, and when they want to own their own data, that's typically when we will start looking at things seriously. I, I think that last one, own your own data. Um, yeah. If multiple parties need to do a thing and own their own data, but agree that these things happened and then do the next thing, right. that's yeah. when a blockchain in a corporate context actually starts to make some sense. Yeah. But that's not every problem they have. That's like this this tiny subset of problems that they have. Exactly. There's some quite important ones. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's an important point in here. Like, It's easy to say, oh, yeah, you just need a fancy database. And yeah, that's what it is, kind of. Um, yeah. I, that's why I like to say DLT rather than blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when we're talking about finance, we're talking about really, really, really big numbers. And the, the risk that something gets screwed up may be very minor because we've done everything with technology we can, but a really small number times a really big number ends up being a very big number. Yeah. And if we need to you know, replicate databases and make sure they talk together correctly and put more and more numbers in that, sometimes it starts to make sense because mm -hmm. we're talking about trillions of dollars and a 1% chance they go missing. And I think yeah. people don't often realize how inefficient some of the processes in banks are that evolved from the 30s onwards mm -hmm. that you know, were paper-based processes that we've tried to evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve. So an opportunity to rethink the architecture of how banks talk to each other is still really, really useful and really powerful, if not 
the same thing as Bitcoin, actually quite quite different. Um, but that's no bad thing if it's solving a problem. I would. I would it's almost yeah, like two exactly. different industries, though, right? They are. Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like saying it's it's almost like having making them part of the same conversation. It's making two things part of the same conversation because they use the internet. Yeah. yeah. Or you know, they're entirely different things. This is a yeah. a bank efficiency thing. This is a better money for the world thing, and yeah, I mean, I don't know if it works or not. I wouldn't. But can I thread the needle here? I think that there's a lot to be learned from both sides. Yeah, Yeah, I I think that bankers that say Bitcoin's evil and it's stupid and we shouldn't pay attention to it are missing the point. And I think that the Bitcoiners who say banks are evil and they should all die are also kind of missing the point because at the end of the day, we're going to converge on some future that's somewhere in between. It might not be fifty-fifty, but it's not going to be a hundred-zero. No, no, and. I don't think I'm not part of this burn the banks down. Mm-hmm. They're all evil. We should all be our own bank and, and have uh, private keys to our own Bitcoin and, <laughs> and all barter with each other all day. I don't, yeah. th- I don't believe that. Yeah, uh, I don't think it's right. And that's why I don't really care about mass adoption. I care about an asset that's worth, which is one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable asset in the world, which can take control out of governments who inflate our currency and tax us to the hill to create bombs to bomb people in the Middle East. That's what I want to get away from. Well, it's an alternative. It's an option. And and having an alternative, I think, is important. An opt-out. An opt-out. What I think um, happens oftentimes, too, and I'm not taking a position either way. I mean, I I am an ex-banker, right? I mean, it's not a secret, but... Um, Once a banker, always a banker. No, thank you, no. Hotel California. Are you, are you, are you a complete banker? No, I'm a fake banker. Total banker. But um, when you, as you say, um, talk about them in the same uh, conversation and, and the issues become conflated, when I hear you talk, if, if I put on my, you know, um, crypto as an option, um, for you know, financial inclusion, the underserved, um, you know, cheaper, faster remittances, etc. And I hear you talk about optimizing and reducing costs and creating efficiencies. Are these going to trickle down? Is it going to actually create a better financial system for everybody? Well, I really hope so. And, and look, I yeah. do too. I hope yeah, it's not another way for banks to make money. I don't think that's the intention. But there's plenty of other ways banks will make themselves more efficient. And we don't talk about those, and that's why I'm I, I'm kind of like, eh. well. We do have another podcast called FinTech Insider <laughs> yeah. where you can yeah. hear all about this. Yeah. Yeah, always, <laughs> yeah. always be shilling. Um, but but look, uh, I think that's a nice that a nice place to yeah. leave the conversation because really, when it comes down to it, we're all here to learn. And, and actually, I've really enjoyed mm. sort of the the different perspectives, but the the intellectual curiosity that we've had from our panel. Um, and that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes an amazing episode 100. So before we grab a few nibbles and some drinks and we have a bit of a chat. Uh, where can our listeners and audience find out more about you, TBT? You can find me on Twitter at, at Tina Taylor or at gdf.io. Brilliant. And uh, yourself, Ollie? Yeah. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Ollie J. Harris. Uh, or go to our website, gocrom.com. You can learn all about um, what we're up to and all the companies building on it. Brilliant. Cool. Uh, Peter? Um, I'm also on Twitter I'm at Peter McCormack. Um, and uh, my podcast is called What Bitcoin Did. Great podcast. Agreed. You Way will better learn than this one. a lot. <laughs> it's, it's different. It's different. It but really it's, is. it's a great podcast. Uh, it is. Well. <laughs> no, no blockchain experts. Uh, yeah, uh, and I'm about to launch a new one which is uh, called Defiance, which is all about human rights, freedom, censorship, and kind of Bitcoin as well. Um, yeah, find that What Bitcoin Did. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much for being with us. And Colin G. Platt. Um, at Colin G. Platt on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Make it, keep it easy for everybody. Keep it easy. You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or you can email me Simon at 11FS.com. And uh, of course, you wonderful audience, please give yourself a cheer. Before we let this live audience go as well, we have to thank our hosts here at Level 39. So please, can we have a round of applause for our hosts at Level 39? And of course, uh, the wonderful team at 11FS. Can I hear for our event organizer, Laura Raimondi. Laura, uh, round of applause, wherever you are. Uh, Bianca and Jess for all of our marketing and social goodness. <laughs> our wonderful 11FS volunteers, Hannah, Jim, Tom, Edgar, Laura. Round of applause for those peace. Uh, our video and audio engineers, Alex and Michael, wherever you are. Right at the back there, give them a wave. Oh, and of course, uh, where would we be without that guy that puts together the show notes, the voice of Tweet of the Week himself, the one, the only, producer, freaking Petra, everybody. Take a bow, sir, take a bow.